0: You are listening to National Security Law
1: Today. All right, welcome to National Security Law Today, which is the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Let me introduce the people who are going to do this podcast today. My name is Elisa. I'm a national security lawyer doing this in my individual capacity. I'm Yvette. Same. And I'm Nicole, a member of the ABA Standing Committee staff. Let me tell you about an important event that we're having on November 15th. Um, You can join two members uh, of the committee and former podcast stars, Suzanne Spaulding and Harvey Rishikoff, who will be speaking at a CSIS event called Countering Adversary Attacks on Democratic, on Democracy, sorry. Um, And Senator Mark Warner will also be there. And on December 4th, The committee will be holding a breakfast event in D.C. where John Carlin, former Assistant uh, Attorney General for the National Security Division at the Department of Justice, will be speaking. And let me point out, he has a new book out, uh, which makes a compelling argument that we're basically in a digital war right now. So this will be exciting. All right. So our guest today is Dr. Bradley Hart. He's an assistant professor at California State University, Fresno. He completed his Ph.D. at Churchill College in Cambridge University. pip hip oh, yes. <laughs> and he's author, or co-authored, three books. His latest book is what brings him here today, and it is called Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich's Supporters in the United States. And you can find it right now at your brick-and-mortar bookstore or at any online bookseller. Bradley, this book focuses on a topic uh, that I think has been buried in our history, um, and it's an important topic right now as we look at what is happening, um, or has been happening. Today is Election Day, as we're recording, and I know that Americans are concerned about uh, interference with elections in general. So there was a Nazi influence campaign, of course, in the run-up to the Second World War, and in particular, uh, Hitler made efforts to influence U.S. policy uh, by reaching into America's organizations and democratic institutions with this propaganda machine. Paint a picture for us of America at that time and how people felt about the Nazi Party and President Roosevelt.
2: Well, first off, thanks very much for having me on the podcast. I think this is a really important and, as you say, timely topic. The 1930s are kind of a period that we have a strange impression of. We tend to think nostalgically about this period as involving a great deal of hardship with the Great Depression, of course, but is this transitional period between sort of an earlier time in American history into the modern era. What we forget as part of that narrative, though, is that this was an incredibly politically divisive time. And I actually compare it in the book to the 1960s in a lot of ways. I think that's an apt abs- comp- period of comparison, actually. President Roosevelt was subjected to a huge amount of hatred in the United States. This is something else we've forgotten because he's, of course, a revered president today. But... In 1940, he runs for the unprecedented third term in office and then even a fourth term beyond that. And this is something that's never happened before since American history. So for a large number of Americans, Roosevelt was actually a villainous figure. He was seen as a, a would-be dictator in some ways, in some circles. Um, and so he was an individual who was subjected to a great deal of hatred. The Nazis took advantage of this, and that was really at the core of their campaign against the United States in this era, taking advantage of the political divisions that already existed and trying to expand upon those actions. And their main goal was to keep the United States out of the war, um, which was the most proximate goal. Ultimately, they would have, of course, wanted the U.S. to to join the war on their side against the Soviet Union, but that was seen as, as far less likely. So their real goal early on was to attack Roosevelt, to politically weaken him, and to try to keep the U.S. out of the war in Europe.
0: And in the book, you focus on three primary groups in America, the American Bund, America First, and the Silver Shirts, What were these groups and how did they get out the Nazi message in the U.S.?
2: These are three frightening organizations in three very different ways. The German-American Bund was founded in 1936 by essentially the German embassy, and it grew out of some other pro-Nazi and pro-German groups that existed prior to that that had actually been shut down because Berlin was afraid that they were actually damaging German-American relations. So the Bund is founded in 1936 ostensibly as a German-American cultural organization, but they very quickly show their true stripes by combining the swastika with the American flag and their official logo. And so this becomes a the nation's probably largest and most openly pro-Nazi group. Their leader declares himself to be... Sort of a future Führer type figure, and travels to Germany to meet Hitler, in theory, to get his uh, get his endorsement of this organization. Though that never really happens in the way he wants. Um, but they attract more than 100,000 members nationwide and 100,000 sympathizers. So the total membership of this organization was was fairly substantial. They were organized in most states outside the South, which just didn't have a very large German American community, and also the Ku Klux Klan was seen as a rival group down there. Uh, and so the German-American boon really openly supports Nazism and claims, of course, that it's not anti-Semitic, but their slogan is free America, by which they mean an America free from supposed Jewish control. So their ideological orientation is never really in question. And throughout this period, they. Hold mass rallies. They actually have summer camps for kids, which become quite frightening for a lot of people. And these summer camps, of course, involve uh, Nazi salutes and all sorts of other things like that. Um, and so in 1939, they hold a mass rally at Madison Square Garden in New York, where Fritz Kuhn, the head of the organization, um, declares that if George Washington were around today, he would certainly be a Nazi. Um, And and (laughs) that results in violence in the streets. The New York City Police Department has to send thousands of officers out. So it's a really big event. And it actually ends up bringing down the Boone because in the aftermath, Mayor LaGuardia of New York orders an investigation of their finances, which (laughs) reveals that Kuhn has been actually skimming money out of the Boone's own accounts. So this leads to their downfall in 1939. The Silver Legion is somewhat similar. It's founded by an eccentric um, former Hollywood screenwriter, actually, named William Dudley Pelley who claims to have received spiritual prophecies from from Jesus, telling him to form what he calls a Christian commonwealth in the United States. And this Christian commonwealth bears remarkable similarities to Nazi Germany, particularly in its anti-Semitic orientation. So throughout the 30s, Pelle operates basically alongside the Boone. They never merged our organizations because of personality and ideological differences, but they are certainly working hand-in-hand in a lot of parts of the country. Um, Pelly ends up being brought down by his own personal corruption as well. So we can see a a pattern emerging already. Um, And by 1940 or so, Pelley is basically put out of business by um, congressional investigation and actually going to prison in in North Carolina for uh, tax evasion, not tax evasion, but fraud um, of his own investors. So, So he's brought down by his corruption as well. Both of these groups eventually get amalgamated under the umbrella of the America First Committee. So America First is founded after the 1940 election. It is ostensibly a non-intervention group, so arguing against U.S. intervention in the war. But as I show in the book, really what's going on here is that you have a lot of really well-intentioned citizens, I think, who are part of this, who genuinely don't want the U.S. to get involved in the war or have their relatives killed. But also it attracts former Boond members, former Silver Shirts. So we can see these three groups as really progressions of extremism along the political spectrum. The German-American Boond, the Silver Legion are fairly open about their, their views and their goals, America First ostensibly has a different set of goals, but really they they have very overlapping memberships in that sense.
3: So uh, there's a really interesting point that you made. Uh, thank you so much for covering all of those groups. Um, obviously, there's much more in the book for everyone, but that's a wonderful summary. Um, I just want to kind of like tease out something that you said. Um, what happens when there are Americans that really do have um, genuine sentiments that happen to align with what the enemy would want
2: yeah this is a really great question this is one of the more disturbing things that came out in researching and writing this book there were quite a lot of americans and i i would argue actually that most americans shared isolationist and non-interventionist views at least to some extent well it's Second like world war i would think or i would argue the interventionist position was actually the minority position at least in most parts of the country um and so yes there are people who genuinely do want to stay out of the war there are actually gold star mothers who appeared at america first events and and say that they don't want the U.S. to go into the war because they don't want anyone else to suffer as they have suffered. And so it's a really tragic and you can imagine emotional moment when these women appear on stage. Um, And then there are – and effectively, the sad part is they become essentially dupes of the Nazis in that sense. It's very clear that America First has – is being influenced by the Nazis. There's some allegation that's actually being funded by them at this point – And so it is quite an unfortunate thing. And I think, um, well, one aspect I'm interested in is trying to find out how people viewed that after the war. When it does become clear that America First was perhaps not what it appeared to be at the time. um, Unfortunately, I haven't been actually able to find a lot of accounts from people who were involved in it. So that suggests to me that they really just wanted to make this go away. But there's no doubt that many people who were involved in this organization, that was nearly a million people strong. We should remember in 1940, 41, that they did become essentially dupes of the enemy.
1: Wow. So let me, I I think one of the questions that we have is, um, just to follow on with this, is their methodologies for, you mentioned rallies. How did they exploit the media, for example, to get messages out? What were some other sort of pipelines for getting messages out that were pro-Nazi that they used?
2: Well, the similar ones to, I'm sure, what's always been used. There's the overt methods and there's the covert methods. So the overt methods are trying to drive the news cycle, and this is what Fritz Kuhn is doing in 1939 when he holds this huge rally. He knows it's going to become a violent event. He's planned for it. He actually brags in the press that his own stormtroopers are ready to deal with any communists, as he called them, that want to cause trouble. So, so this is a way to try to control the headlines and, and drive the narrative, and this actually works. The German-American Boone rally becomes front-page news across the country. So so these are these are sort of the the most obvious methods. The Germans and the actually the British as well, are waging a covert war in this period, not dissimilar, I think, to the sort of digital war that you we were mentioning in the introduction that we're facing today. The Germans attempted to plant stories in the American press, which they did so successfully. They had agents uh, across the country who would phone up reporters with tips about how the British were losing the war, um how casualties were were piling up on in France and Poland and places like that. So, so influencing the press covertly was a big part of this. The British knew that this was an essential part of their war effort as well. So they actually said stories to the columnist Walter Winchell um, and we think also the columnist Drew Pearson, who were two major figures in this, the newspaper industry in this period, um, about how the Germans were actually losing the war and the British were actually hanging on. So trying to influence the press was a key part of this. Um, at one point, the British actually bought a radio station on the West Coast and tried to propagate it with with pro-British sort of messaging. But that was much less effective than trying to influence the news cycle. And we know that both sides, as well as these other organizations we were talking about, tried to do that and did so effectively.
1: Wow. Okay. So I guess one of the more disturbing features, as you you heard in our introduction today, is we talk a lot about preserving America's democratic institutions. And it is a fact that the Nazis managed... To get a few members of Congress um, to convey their messages and maybe even enter some things into the congressional record. Can you give us a quick overview of that?
2: Absolutely. This was an incredible scheme that was concocted straight really from Berlin uh, to influence American politics. At the heart of this plot was a man named George Sylvester Bierek, who's almost completely forgotten today, but really is a, an important figure. He was been a propagandist during World War I, and when Hitler comes to power in, in the early 30s in Germany, Believes that he's the man to sort of bring Germany back, uh, from its, from its problems effectively. And so Virek travels to Germany, gets the blessing of the Foreign Office, and then begins a propaganda operation on Capitol Hill. So he first approaches, uh, Ernest Lindeen of Minnesota, farmer labor senator. Um, and so Lundin is approached by Virek who offers to write speeches for him and do research for him in his opposition to U.S. entering the war in Europe. And Lundin sort of maybe naively, maybe foolishly takes him up on this offer. And so he's receiving these speeches that are being written by Virek, and in fact they're being at least co-authored, if not directly written by members of the German embassy. And so Lundin starts putting this stuff into the congressional record, and then he actually gets more sophisticated and starts putting in the congressional record appendix, which is the part of the congressional record that you don't actually have to speak the words on the floor to get it in there. You just sort of insert it by unanimous consent. And so all this stuff is getting into the congressional record. So this is part one of the plot. Virek's plot, though, then takes an even more insidious twist because he realizes that he can get these congressmen to use congressional franking privilege. So this is the ability to send mail for free with a return address from a congressperson on it. And this, of course, is a very well-intentioned thing. It actually still exists, but it it was designed to allow members of Congress to interact with the public on official matters without having to pay a financial penalty. Uh, But what Burek realizes is if he can get these franked envelopes from congressmen's offices, he can mail out anything he wants that appears to be official for no cost or for very low cost. Um, And, of course, what's more official than mailing the congressional record? And so over the period of about 1936 to 1940, Burek convinces about, a, we think about a dozen congressmen to turn over franked envelopes to him, and he uses four particular Congress or members of Congress to insert stuff into the congressional records. So Ernest Lundeen is one, Senator Rush D. Holt of West Virginia, who actually loses his seat after one term is another. So they're the main players in the U.S. Senate. Representative Hamilton Fish III, Republican of New York, is a player in the House of Representatives. He actually plays a key role. And then Stephen Day of Illinois, who is a, again, almost forgotten figure today, but he also is involved. And there's other senators who become involved with Virek as well, who are mostly, well, entirely on the isolationist, anti-interventionist side. But this plot is incredibly successful. Virek ends up mailing, we think, literally millions of pieces of mail out to American mailboxes. Um, with the return address of a member of Congress, and so you can imagine how how incredible this is uh, to sort of suddenly receive this official seeming thing from the Congressional Record, maybe with your congressman's return address, maybe not even your congressman, um, and it's some speech denouncing the British for their their supposed perfidy and, and predicting they're going to lose the war and that that's why the U.S. shouldn't get involved. So it's an incredibly effective and, and really disturbing propaganda operation.
1: Wow,
3: that is really. Terrifying. Um, so I, I think like there's another, you know, even beyond, uh, you know, members of Congress and ordinary Americans, there was also a celebrity figure that you talk about uh, quite extensively in the book, Charles Lindbergh. And he used his fame from being the first man to complete a transatlantic flight to spread anti Semitic messages that ran counter to the national security interests in the, of the United States. So how was that important in, in this movement?
1: And, and what was his motivation uh, for doing this?
2: Yeah, these are all great questions. Lindbergh is a really interesting and in some ways baffling figure. He is, of course, famous for the 1927 flight across the Atlantic. The second part of that story is that he's also famous because of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. So this happens in 1932, where his son is abducted from his house in New Jersey, um, and Lindbergh receives some, you know, ransom notes like you see in the movies with things cut out of magazines type thing. Um, it was the prime uh, of the century. The
1: yeah,
3: literally. It was, it was literally yeah, the prime of the century.
2: Thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and so he, um, ends up paying the ransom and the baby's body is found, you know, a few hundred yards from the house. And so this becomes the trial of the century. It's one of the biggest trials that the FBI is ever involved with in this period. It it, it captures national attention. So that's important because it sort of catapults Lindbergh into even greater fame, but it also makes him leave the United States. So after the trial ends and the alleged killer, we're still not entirely sure what happened there, but the man who's convicted of the crime at least is executed, Lindbergh moves off to Britain with his wife to try to escape the American press. And while he's there, he receives a letter from the American military attache at the Berlin embassy asking him to come to Berlin to visit some Nazi aircraft production facilities and report on what's going on there for the U.S. government. And, of course, Lindbergh is seen as very well qualified for this because he's the most famous aviator. In history at this point. So Lindbergh does it. And in 1936, he goes off to Germany for the first time. And of course, this is all very carefully stage managed stuff. And that's another interesting and disturbing aspect of this, that the Nazis are very effective at sort of co-opting people once they visit Nazi Germany. They can put on a very good show for people. And so Lindbergh goes there he visits these aircraft facilities and becomes convinced of a couple of things. Firstly, that Germany is a really strong military power, which he's, of course, correct about, that they are very advanced in terms of their aircraft. They have incredible aircraft production. It's probably much better than what's going on in the US at that point, and certainly better than Britain. So so that's sort of the military side of it. But he also becomes convinced, it seems, that Germany's social system is superior. And this is of course the social system of national socialism. And so Lindbergh starts to have a starts to develop a strange interest in eugenics, in the ideas of racial purity, and he sort of starts toying around with some of this stuff when he's in, in Britain and later on in France. Um and so he then he becomes a sort of outspoken advocate in this period of, of German military might. And so he's writing with um, American military representatives in the U.S. and in, in Berlin and Britain as well, saying that the U.S. has no chance of beating the Germans in the event of war. And so this becomes a really powerful voice. The problem is, is that the Nazis see the possibility of using Lindbergh for their own purposes. And at one point in, I think it's 1938, uh, Hermann Goering, the head of the, the Luftwaffe, awards Lindbergh the highest civilian honor, effectively, you can receive in the Third Reich. And this is the same medal that's only given to Henry Ford, the great American industrial magnate for his services to the Reich as well. Um, but Lindbergh receives this. and This causes a huge sensation in the American press. Um, he's actually granted as a Nazi sympathizer. He's denounced by members of the Roosevelt administration, The airline TWA drops his name from their slogan. So it's it's a huge public relations disaster. And Lindbergh then returns to the U.S. Um, So comes back to the U.S. in early 1939, meets with Roosevelt, who gives him the cold shoulder for obvious reasons, and then uh, retreats into war preparations. But then when the war breaks out, he makes this momentous decision to speak out against it. So you can imagine how amazing a moment this is. This is arguably the most famous celebrity in the country, besides maybe a Charlie Chaplin at that point, speaking out against the war. And so in, throughout 39 and 40, he makes these, spe- or these radio speeches with national radio hookups saying that, that Britain is doomed, the war is already over, the U.S. shouldn't get involved in it. Um, and then he joins the America First Committee in 1940. And then the most famous event, which I think we're referring to here, which is September 11th, 1941, a date, of course, that will become very significant later on in American history, But on this particular date, Lindbergh gives a speech in Des Moines, Iowa, in which he says that the only reason that the U.S. is being being pushed towards war is because of the British, the Roosevelt administration, and the Jews. And so now he has fully made the turn into anti-Semitism. And this is certainly contrary to the national security interests of the United States. One thing I point out in the book is, imagine if this kind of pressure wasn't being brought upon Roosevelt to stay out of the war. Imagine if people like Lindbergh, supported the administration's policies or supported a more interventionist stance. If the U.S. in 1939 had said, if you don't get out of Poland, Adolf Hitler, we're going to go to war in 24 hours, that would have had a major impact. And so Lindbergh and the isolationists do have this incredible impact on American foreign policy, even though only a handful of them are in elected office, even though the vast majority of their membership is sort of average citizens, they do have this incredible impact. And Lindbergh is really an essential part of that.
3: So it's really um, this. This makes this book very timely. Of course, you wrote this before um, the tragedy at the Tree of Life synagogue, but this conspiracy theories, the um, like, there are a lot of themes that rhyme with the current news today. I wonder what you think about the responsibility of public figures when they're making public statements.
2: Well, I think this is one thing that, did, again, was very disturbing in writing this book, but the sheer amount of just irresponsible rhetoric that was being thrown around in this period is, is really frightening. A good example of that can be found in the media industry, again, where you have Father Charles Coghlan, probably the most infamous radio host of this period. And Coughlin is a Catholic priest, so this gives him a great deal of credibility with his audience. He, he becomes, in some ways, the voice of the disaffected Depression generation, And as part of that, he kind of lapses into anti-Semitism. He he starts to advocate the view that the only reason the Depression is continuing is because of of Jewish bankers, effectively. So he he goes in this very pro-Nazi direction. We know that he is friendly with with the German embassy to some extent, though they are afraid of being too closely connected with him because they're afraid they'll hurt his credibility. Um, But Coghlin in 1940 forms what's called the Christian Front, which is basically a paramilitary group. And in late 1940, early 1941, there's a huge scandal in which some members of the Christian Front in Brooklyn, New York, um, are actually accused of plotting to blow up the Brooklyn Bridge, seize the Federal Reserve, and start a Nazi revolution. And so Coglin has this interesting response where he says, "Well, I didn't I didn't call for the creation of that Christian Front. I just called for the creation of a Christian Front." <laughs> <laughs> But then, interestingly, he embraces the Brooklyn boys, and he turns the trial in some ways into a referendum on Catholicism. The Brooklyn boys' defense attorney argues that this is a, a witch hunt prosecution because the um, the attorney general at this point is anti-Catholic, supposedly. And the Brooklyn boys actually end up getting off, so none of them actually face any legal consequences for this. But I think that's a good example of the type of stuff we're talking about, where Coughlin tries to make this rhetorical dodge of saying, well, Perhaps I advocated creating an organization that shares the same name, but obviously not this one, that these bad guys were a part of, I thing. And then he retreats even from that. So I think this is one thing that, that we are kind of rediscovering in some ways in this country, is that public figures do have a great deal of responsibility, um, and that applies to media figures as well as politicians. Um, but I think holding people responsible for the things that they say and the things that they may be encouraging in that sense is a really important part of democracy.
0: And speaking of the media, you pointed out that the press, which is what we think of as a fourth estate, was targeted by the Nazis, but also you're describing a very polarized media culture at that time around the start of the war. So what are some other examples you can give us of both the targeting and the polarization in American media at that time?
2: Yeah, absolutely. American media is incredibly divided. One interesting thing about this era is that this is a period in which we still have um, a lot of newspapers uh, because newspapers, of course, the primary media vehicle, they're not published in English. So immigrant communities oftentimes have their own locally produced newspaper that, that is in whatever that language would be, whether it's German or Czech or Italian. And so this leads to to some of this polarization. The German-American Bund actually puts out its own newspaper um, that has a large number of, of subscribers that publishes in both German and in English. And so this is a vehicle through which individuals and, in fact, governments can put forward their messages sort of outside the mainstream. It's a way to reach a very niche part of the market, people who happen to understand that language or even live in a local area. Um, Father who we mentioned a moment ago, also had his own newspaper called Social Justice, claims to have almost a million subscribers. Um, Actually, Senator Rush D. Holt, who I mentioned a moment ago, was a subscriber to Social Justice at one point. So, So these are sort of niche publications that manage to get a very large audience. This is the kind of stuff that the Nazis and later on the communists use with great effectiveness because they know that the readers of these publications are going to be at least possibly inclined towards accepting that message. And they know they can can put things in these publications outside the mainstream's eyes. So I think a good analogy is thinking about these sort of neighborhood or borough newspapers is almost like obscure blogs today. Where you know that almost everybody whose eyes are going to cross this thing might be somewhat inclined towards your point of view, and they're going to keep reading because of that, or there's at least some affinity that you have with the reader already in that sense, and so this leads to a really polarized environment. And in fact, accusations about, um, you know, the media being left wing or right wing, I mean, these were flying around in this era as well, and it's actually really interesting parallels in that sense.
0: We're going to end this episode here. Please join us again next week as we continue our conversation with Bradley Hart on how foreign influence operations affected America's national security decisions in the 1930s and 40s and for more on the genesis of the Foreign Agents Registration Act. If you'd like to learn more about foreign influence in the current day, you can attend the CSIS event, Countering Adversary Attacks on Democracy, where Suzanne Spalding and Harvey Rishikoff will be speaking along with Senator Mark Warner on November 15th, or join the committee for breakfast with John Carlin on December 4th to speak about his book, The Dawn of the Code War. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today from the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. You can find more about us or those events at AmericanBar.org NatSecurity. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our Facebook page. From all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on National Security Law Today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should
1: not be construed as representing ABA policy.